I am so excited about all that God has in store for us today. And here this morning, we are continuing in this series, this um, In the Beginning series that we started last week. And I, I hope that um, that many of you who picked up your devotionals last week have dove into those. And uh, we did have many that uh, that picked those up and... Uh, we do have some more available if anybody's interested. We do have some more of our devotionals available that uh, can supplement all that uh, all that we are receiving here in this Sunday morning class. And you can, on a daily basis, get into the Word of God, and uh, we can dive just a little bit deeper into these. Uh, right now, what we are looking at into these beginning uh, things, beginning elements of Scripture. And I, I have thoroughly just enjoyed myself this uh, this devotional, and I hope that that you are as well. Last week we we looked at the the creation account, and uh, we're going to somewhat stay in that that same same area. But I want to first turn to a, a passage in the book of Romans, the book of Romans, chapter five. And beginning in verse 19, the, the author here, he, he says, For as by one man's disobedience, now who are we talking about? We're talking about Adam. And so he's, he's looking back to Adam. He says, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. Now, this second one that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. He said, so it was by one man's disobedience, that being Adam, sin entered into the world, but by one man's obedience, which was Jesus Christ, and his obedience to the, uh, to the death, uh, to, to dying on the cross, we have an opportunity to be made righteous. Now let's continue in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I'm thankful for that, that in my place of sin, that wherever sin was at, that God had grace. Now where there is sin... That there is enough grace to cover whatever bit of mess you found yourself in. Whatever, however much sin you feel that, uh, that, that you have heaped upon its, you know, one thing upon another. There is enough grace that can cover how, however big that heap of sin is. Grace did much more abound than whatever amount of sin. So wherever the sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Continuing in verse 21, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to just focus in here this morning on this redemptive plan that God had from the very beginning that he was not, uh, he didn't leave us in the dark, but he had a plan for redemption from our sin. It was, I was, I was doing a little bit of digging into some history this week and I noticed that in, in 1513, the year 1513, that had been a, 
a very bloody year in the, the British Isles. There were thousands of Scots, including the King of Scotland, who lost their lives in a defeat at the city of Flodden in Scotland's war against the kingdom of England. In that same year, in London, there was an undersheriff by the name of Thomas More. Thomas More was a lawyer by trade who more than once had considered giving up that profession to become a a monk, go to live in a monastery. And with all of society's ills and, and all these things in plain view as he was there in London, he began to write this book that would make ripples throughout English society for decades to come. This book was titled Utopia. Now he was he was the one who, who coined this word. It was it was not a word uh, in in the English dictionary at that point. But you, he he wrote this this uh, this book Utopia that was then published in the year fifteen sixteen. And in this book, Sir Thomas More he builds this fictional idyllic country. This country that he would name Utopia. And in this country, or in this book, he, he contrasts the contentious social life that he is seeing around him there in, in Europe. And, and he's seeing all this war that's going on. And, and as, a, as an undersheriff in London, he sees all the ills of society. And, and he, he sees all of that. And he, he, he begins to imagine what life would be like if it was perfect. And so he, in this book, he, he, imagines this island that is off the coast of South America and, and this island which which you would name Utopia. He he builds this society in this this place and uh it's it's a place where the participants would uh would all behave. There was uh communal ownership that uh there was no necessarily private property. We had men and women who were educated the same and in that day that wasn't the case. We had, uh, in, in his view of utopia, a, a re- religious toleration. And um, he had all these things that, in, in fact, in one quote in his book, I'll read it here. He said, why do you suppose, he's speaking here to the king. He says, why do you suppose that they made you king in the first place? He said, it was not for your benefit, but for theirs. They meant... You to devote your energies to making their lives more comfortable and protecting them from injustice. So your job is to see that they're all right, not that you are. Just as a shepherd's job, strictly speaking, is to feed his sheep, not himself. Okay? This man, Sir Thomas More, he was, he was imagining what life would be like in a utopia. This is in his view, a, a, a perfect fictional society. And this, of course, would become a popular genre of books. We've, we see many books today that, uh, that have sprung up from this idea of Thomas More of writing about a perfect society. We see New Atlantis. We see uh, uh, Candide by, by Voltaire. We see all these different books. In fact, even today, I, I, uh, we see um, more, more presently Walt Disney. Imagined a perfect society. He, he imagined a place. It was called the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. 
and he never ended up seeing that city come to life but himself but today it stands as one of his theme parks Epcot even this week I don't know anybody happen to see this week in the news uh, a story about utopia a utopian city it's kind of what made my my mind go there I, at first I came across this article uh, I, I saw it a couple times in the news this week a, a former Walmart executive a billionaire Mark Lohr, he's hoping to build in America sometime soon in a, a desert somewhere. He hasn't said exactly where, but in one of the deserts in North America, he's planning on building a utopian uh, city. Now, he has some pretty big plans for this because in his mind, he's going to have residents living there by 2030. And... Here's, here's some quotes from his, uh, his expectation of building this city. He says, we have a chance to prove a new model for society that offers people a higher quality of life, a greater opportunity. He says, when I look out 30 years from now, I imagine equitism serving as a blueprint for other cities. That's the name of his city. I'm sorry, no, the name of his city is uh, Telosa. He says, even in the world, and, and Telosa um, will be a place of pride for all who live there. It's, uh, you'll have to look that up. There's, there's, I should have thrown some pictures up of his idea. There's a huge skyscrapers, this be- beautiful city that he's planning on building that he believes is going to be a utopia. I don't know, these, these utopian societies, this has been kind of the imagination of people for a long time, right? And what would it be like if everything was perfect? Now, while these things are somewhat of our fantasy today, there was once a perfect place. There was once a utopia that really existed. It was, it was a garden that was planted eastward in Eden. And there's never been a garden like the Garden of Eden. There's never been a society quite like it was at the very beginning in Eden because that garden was perfectly made by God's design. Everything in it reflected the magnificent magnificence of God. Everything in it reflected the way that God uh, thought things should be from the very beginning. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel, several times in his in his writings, he refers to Eden as the Garden of God. We see it in Ezekiel twenty eight, verse thirteen, where. It's speaking of, of Satan, how he was in that Garden of Eden. But he says, Thou hast been in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald. All these stones, he says, the carbuncle, the gold, the workmanship of your tablets, the pipes were prepared in thee. That was in the day that you were created. But it was the Garden of God that you were in. We see this in other uh, places in, in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, we see Ezekiel refer to Eden as the garden of God. We see Isaiah, who points to this as a place, as Eden, as a place where there was joy. There was gladness. There was thanksgiving. He says that there were, there were songs of melody that could be found there. Genesis Describes this as a place in which every tree grew. It was a place that was pleasing to the sight. It was good for food. It was 
uh, there was a place where a river flowed out of the garden, which upon exiting it, it split into four rivers that made up the fertile crescent. You have animals of every color and of every stripe that were present and accounted for there in the garden of Eden. This was the place where the tree of life stood in the midst of it. This was the garden of God. This was utopia. This was a place which was pure. It was a place that was pristine. It was a place that was ordered. It was filled by God. But, but Eden was not complete. You say, what do you mean it wasn't complete? It was, this, God had a plan for Eden because, because even though God created it in, in perfection and God created this perfect place, He still placed Adam inside of it and said, Adam, I want you to dress it and to keep it. I want you to go and I want you to make something of this beauty. I want you, my, 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 my prized creation, the one who was made in my image and my likeness. I want you to go and I want you to make something of this. And here's what I want you to know is, is that whatever God creates, God has a story for it. God has a plan for it. He, he didn't just set things, uh, in, in this earth and, you know, just for them to let go, end up going to waste, but God has a plan for him. And he placed Adam there and he says, I want you to dress it. I want you to keep it. I want you to take care of it. And, and you're going to make this, uh, something that is beautiful. See, the, as good as the original Eden was, it was still a place that was vulnerable to evil. It was still a place that was vulnerable to deception. It was still a place that was vulnerable even to death. Not, uh, not as presently constructed as created, but there was a place where death could, could enter in. Now we see this when Satan comes in, when he inhabited the, the body of a, an ordinary serpent and he brought death into that garden. But here's what I love. I love that in Revelation chapter 21, John takes care to assure us that this is not going to happen in the greater garden that is to come. There's, there's, uh, some, some language in, in scripture that talks about heaven as being the garden of, of God. It talks about it as, as being the place where we will once again see the tree of life. And, and in that garden, in this greater garden to come, we see that, uh, in Revelation 21, 27, it says that nothing unclean, there shall be in no wise enter into anything that defiles Neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, there will be nothing that can enter into that garden of God. There will be nothing that can come in. And and what was in the beginning was, was vulnerable to sin. There will come a day where we will experience something where there will be no sin. There will be no sorrow. There will be no deception. There will be a place that is prepared for us right now, being prepared for us. That we will go into that will be as, as great as Eden and even better. Now, if you were to ask me, you know, what, what is, what truly made the Garden of Eden perfect? Because in it, you have, you have room for deception. In it, you have room for 
for Satan to be able to come in and and begin to speak lies in there. In in, in this garden of, of perfection, you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what made this garden perfect? What made this place, this, this place where God had created for Adam and Eve to live? What made it perfect? And what truly made it perfect was the fact that there was a perfect God that dwelt there with them. That there was a perfect union There was a perfect relationship. There was no sin that had entered into the world. And so because of that, there was a perfect union between God and man that they got to enjoy. They were able to enjoy a a relationship like we haven't truly been able to enjoy since that day. We see in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. It's it's implied here that, that God enjoyed to spend time with Adam and Eve when they were there in the garden. Verse 8, he says, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's as if this is, this is a, a thing that happens often. This is something that it, w- it was, wasn't just a, a one-time thing. They weren't surprised by the fact that God was there coming and walking in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. But, but here on this day, it says this is, this is just following their, their sin um, that they had committed. It says Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God begins asking them, where, where are you at? Why, why is he asking them, where are you at? I, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. Why, where are you at, Adam? Where are you at, Eve? Why, why are you hiding yourselves from me? Because God enjoyed the, the, the communion that he had. God enjoyed the fellowship that he had, this perfect union with himself and his prize creation. And so in this perfect union, we have a world that is without sin. And even after the expulsion, I, 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 I want to Say that even after sin had entered into the world, this is the thing, very thing that God truly desired. God desired a perfect union with man. When God, when God had created Adam and Eve, He created a, um, He created something in His image that, uh, that, that could come and could freely worship Him, that could, uh, that could have a relationship with Him. But then when sin entered into the world, when sin came in, it disrupted all of that. It disrupted the relationship. It disrupted the union that Adam and Eve had with God. And because of that, he had to expel them from the garden, kick them out of the garden. But God missed that relationship. I'm sure Adam and Eve missed the relationship that they had. The walks with God in the cool of the day. The time where they could just come and, and be in his presence. They, they, when sin entered in, it, it broke all of that. I'm sure you've experienced this, that, that, that guilt and the shame that's accompanied with sin. There's, when, whenever we, 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 we make mistakes, whenever we, we fall into sin, there's, there's something in us you feel and you long for, for a, a closeness to God, but you, you can't 
You can't feel or you can't get it in that moment because sin drives a wedge between us and God. Now, here's the beautiful thing that even though sin drives a wedge between us and God, God still reaches across that gap and he says, come here. I want to be in union with you. I want you close to me. So here we are in this place of vulnerability where sin has come in and and it's broken this union with them, and yet them living in their sin. We see in Exodus 25, verse 8, that God says, build me a sanctuary. Build me a sanctuary so that I can dwell with you. I know that, that you are, this is, this is not a place that, uh, that is perfect like it was when I had placed them in the Garden of Eden. I know that the earth is not a place where, uh, where it is, it is, uh, you know, a, where my holiness can dwell, but I want somewhere that I can come and I can dwell with you. Make me a sanctuary. Make me a place. Here's the thing about sin and about a holy God is that sin separates you from a holy God. God is holy. And there is, he, he cannot dwell with, um, he cannot dwell in the same place as sin, except he, he, he comes and, and, and he, when we sin, when we fall into sin, when we, uh, decide, uh, for ourselves in our free will to sin, it drives a wedge between us and God. But God's, is, in spite of that, says, I want to be with you. So make me a sanctuary. Build me a place. Where my holiness could dwell. Now in order for that to happen. They had to do this according to God's specifications. They had to build this according to what God was, would say. Would allow his holiness to dwell there. And if, if they ever um, try to disrupt that. We see just like, just like the, uh, the man who, uh, Uzzah, who, who touched the ark. The place where God's presence dwelt. The holiness of God. That there, was, there were consequences for uh, for trying to come into where the place where God dwelt in in our unholiness in our in our sinful state, but God was saying, "I want to dwell with you." And and then God Himself came and He dwelt among us as Jesus Christ. He came and He dwelt among us. And then when Jesus left, He says, "I will send My Spirit to go and to dwell in you." Amen. We get to experience that today. We get to experience the gift of God today. We get to experience His Spirit today because God says, I'm longing for the perfect union that I had way back in Eden. I'm longing for that same presence that I, uh, or that same kind of relationship that I had with Adam and Eve. And in fact, there's going to be a day where I'm even going now. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and I will receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may be also. Now, we're, we're talking about the this this perfect union. It was a world without sin where God could have a perfect relationship with his people. But when sin entered into the world, it broke that union. But yet God still says, I want to have relationship with my creation. 
I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be with you. I want to come. And so in order for that to happen, we need to find a place where we can get rid of our sinfulness, where we can get rid of our, of our, uh, of our sins and come back into a relationship with God. But the, the thing is, God himself is not going to force that upon you. I don't know, sometimes I, sometimes I kind of wish that God, God would, right? Sometimes I kind of wish that, and perhaps you've even prayed those prayers, you know, God, just, just make me to not sin anymore. He won't do it. He won't make you not sin. He won't take away that freedom of choice from you because God, when he created us, he created us with free will. That free will is, is this capacity to make unconstrained and, and voluntary choices. It's this, it's this uh, ability for us to, to go and, and we can serve God if we want to or you cannot serve God. It's your choice. God's a gentleman. He's not going to come beating down your door and say, I need, to, I need to be in relationship with you. I need to be here with you. And I, I need you to, to be set free from your sins. That's not, that's not God. God says, it's up to you. I created you in my image. I want to have, uh, I, I want to redeem you from your sins. I want to have a relationship with you, but it's up to you. It's a free will. And so if we see, if we go back to Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden of Eden, I don't Maybe you ask yourself, why, why did God ever place the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? I believe it's this right here. It's this act of free will. Because when God created us, he created something that he says, I want them to have the choice to worship me or to not worship me. I want, to, I want something that out of their own free will, they choose to worship. They choose to obey. They choose to have to be in relationship. And so he places in there the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that, they make a choice to obey. They make a choice to worship. They make a choice to say, yes, God, I will be with you. God, I will listen to you. See, God is offering them. God is offering them this choice between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think it's interesting that, that we really don't see anything, uh, don't, don't read anything about them being enticed by the tree of life. I mean, it seems like that would be enticing, right? It's, it's enticing until you think about the fact that they didn't know anything about mortality. They... They had no sense of what mortality was. God had warned them. He says, the day that you eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But they had not experienced what death was. They had no understanding. Now, for us, we want, we want life. We, we want to escape death in, in, in all these, uh, you know, different ways that we do it to try to live a long life. But, but for them, all they knew was life. They had never experienced death. And so there's something enticing then about, about this tree of knowledge of good and evil. I mean, even just the name of it, even just the name of the tree is kind of enticing as a pull on them. But, but they had a free will between, uh, between life and death, a choice between life 
and death. And here's the thing. We still have that choice today. You say, you say, if I was Adam and Eve, I would have never taken a bite from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I would have only chosen the fruit from the tree of life. Well, we have the same choice today. You have the same choice today. You have life or you have death. You have life in Christ or you have self-reliance. Which one are you going to choose? Which one will we choose today? Will we choose to eat from the tree of life or will we choose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of self-reliance, of saying, I can do this my way. I don't have to do it God's way. I don't have to do this, uh, you know, the way that somebody else would tell me I have to live my life. We have the same choice that Adam and Eve had laid before them on that, uh, in that day in the Garden of Eden. This choice of in our free will to, to choose life or to choose whatever we think is going to be best. And so we must choose to obey. It's, 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 it's a right which God is not going to take that away from us. God is not going to take away this right to choose to serve him or to not serve him. We have the choice. Now, there's consequences to it, and we see that all the way dating back to what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's consequences for our choices. Well, there's blessings for our choices. Amen. But we have the right to choose. Amen. So, so God is, is offering this even today. Do you choose life or do you choose to live life your own way? Now, here's what we see. We see that sin entered into the world. Sin entered into the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Now, the question is, you know, what, what is sin? I know that's a very basic question. To ask, you know, what, what is sin? But um, reality is sometimes when we try to define sin, it's, it, it gets a little uh, sticky. You know, you try to define some things as sin, and you know, but is that really sin? And this, and, and if you look at that word sin, what it really um, means in its original, in the original language is t- just to simply miss the mark. That's what that word sin means, is just to, to miss the mark. Now, now, if you, I mean, that, that seems kind of vague when, when missing the mark. So if we were to define that just a little further, I would say it's, it's opposition to God's divine will. It's, even as James writes it, he says it's knowing to do good and not doing it. Missing the mark. You know to do good, but you don't do that which is good, he says in James, to him it is sin. Now that's a pretty broad scope because uh, we, we see many times, you know, physical actions, different things that we do uh, that um, are defined as sin. Jesus comes on and he begins talking about things on the thoughts of man and the things in the heart. And he defines those as being sin. James, he says, it's just simply knowing to do good and not doing it to them. It is sin. So for Adam and Eve, they knew there were boundaries that were defined. For them, sin was simply disobeying God by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the one thing that they couldn't have. God had said, you can have anything in this garden. Anything here you can have. Now, is anybody... uh, ever, If you've ever studied any level of psychology, uh, you, you probably come across the studies of uh, like little children that they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, what, um, 
what somebody's level of of uh, somebody's level of, of right now, what they want right now. I'm blanking on the word right now, but uh, what, whatever you you're desiring right now, if you if you want that more than what is to come. And they'll, in these studies, they will lay a, a, you know, bring some, some kids in. They'll start asking them some questions and they'll promise them something in the future and, and promise them some good gift if they make it through this interview. But the only thing that they can't do is to eat these cookies. And they'll lay some Oreo cookies there out on the desk and, and they'll start interviewing them. And you can see the kids that they start looking at all these cookies and, and they're, 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 you know, they're, they're wanting them. They look good, Right. And then they get up from the interview, and they're not done yet, but they got to take a break. And so they go out of the room, and, and they just wait to see, what are, the, what are these kids going to do? Do these kids, do they trade this gift that is, that is to come, this great thing that's been promised to them? Do they trade that for, uh, for, for self-gratification, for, for what's right now? Do they, do they trade it for something that will uh, gratify them right now? And many of the kids do. Many of the kids, they'll, they'll say, I, I know I promised that in the future, but right now, these cookies look really good. I mean, myself, I might do that too. Some Oreo cookies sound pretty good. But, you know, how, how often do we do the same thing? Now, we want to gratify ourselves in the moment. That a moment, momentary satisfaction will uh will we think will fulfill us and we'll be able to be uh you know more fulfilled in that than to bypass that for something that is far greater and here's the thing is that that we we live in this grace dispensation that that makes us in our mind feel you know what i'm gonna be okay because god has grace and yes god does have grace but what is uh paul Rice says does grace abound so that we can live in sin? No. Grace doesn't abound, or grace isn't there. It's not available to us so that we can live in sin. Grace is there so that we can be free from our sins. It's not to live in sin. Grace is available to us so that we can be set free from our sins. And so he says, don't lit, don't take advantage of the grace of God because the fact is you never know if your sin, if you, if this is going to be, lead to something greater and greater and lead to something that you're never going to be able to take or to get back to where you, you started from. Sure, you've heard the, a phrase before, if you give the devil an inch, he's going to take a mile. If you try to gratify yourself in the moment right now, you never know truly what you are trading that for. What you are missing out because we allowed sin, we allowed ourselves to come in. And, and there's, there's really no new tricks of the enemy. He doesn't, he doesn't really have any new tricks. It's the same thing that he's been doing ever since the beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 3. If we, if we read about this account, what happened? We see the, the subtlety of, of the serpent that was there in the garden. It says the serpent, he was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Yea, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Has God said that? 
And this kind of this goes directly against the creation account because in the creation account it it is and God said, "Let there be light." And God said, "Let the trees spring up." But and God said, and it was it was God said things, and they were done, right? But the the serpent here, the Satan, he comes in and he begins questioning the, the authority of God's word. Well, we've already seen the authority of God's word because things sprang to life by the authority of God's word. And here he says, did God really mean it when he said that you can eat of all the trees of the fruit of the garden? And the woman said, yeah, we, we can eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. Verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, you're not, sure, you're not surely going to die. He questions the word of God. He begins questioning what God had, had established as the boundaries. In verse 5, God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's knowing good. And evil. I said that the enemy doesn't truly have any new tricks up his sleeve because he's using the same tactics here at the beginning as he uses right now, and we see them in First John two sixteen. It says, "For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world." These three things: the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That. Those are the tactics of the enemy. And here's the thing, the byproducts of this. If you allow the subtlety of the enemy to come in through this, guys, through these things, uh, you, you will experience the guilt and the shame. You will experience maybe a temporary enjoyment, but there's lasting grief to follow. And I just want to bring this to a close here this morning. Just by talking about God seeking Adam and Eve out. And God is still seeking you out today. We already read the passage in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 10, and 8 through 10. When God comes walking in the, in the garden and he asks them this question, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you at? And here they are hiding because of their sinfulness, they had covered themselves with fig leaves because they saw their, their nakedness. And, and God is, is coming and he's searching for them. And he says, where are you? Now, now a, a God, an omnipotent God, a God who, um, or an omnipresent, an omniscient God uh, who knows all things. He knew where Adam and Eve were at. So why does he ask them the question, where are you? Anytime that God begins asking you questions, it's not for him to learn the answer. It's for you to realize and to reflect on where you're at. When he says to Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where Adam was hiding. It's because he wanted Adam to say, Adam, where are you right now? Why are you in the situation that you're in right now? He wants Adam to do a little bit of reflection. And there's some questions that God wants to ask you today. Where are you? Why are you where, where you're at? Come on, let's think about how did I get here? How did I get to the place that I'm at? Because nothing is hidden from God. 
Nothing in life is hidden from God. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows our inner thoughts, everything that's going on in our mind. God knows us. We can't hide from God anywhere. But God still asks us the question sometimes. Where are you? Perhaps he's asking you that today. Where are you at? Because it's only when you realize the place where you're at, where you're truly at, that we can come and to say, God, and, and to reflect and to say, God, I need you. God, I'm, I'm too far away. Because yes, God, he, he did have, he, he did what, exactly what he promised to do. He expelled them from the garden. There was death that entered into the world. There is judgment for sin that's coming. There is a, a, a judgment for, for us if we continue to live in sin. But God had hope. He gave them hope on that same day that they had broken this perfect relationship that they had with him. God gave them hope. It's in Genesis 3.15. You put that scripture up, Genesis 3.15. Since I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, this is, speak, not, this is speaking to the serpent here, speaking to the enemy. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you between your seed and her seed. It will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It's the first prophecy that we see about Jesus Christ. It's the first time that we see a prophecy about the redemptive plan that God had set in stone from the very beginning. It says, I will set you free. Satan, you came and you drove a wedge between me and my people, but I will come and I will destroy you. I will come and I will bruise your head. You're going to get some things in every once in a while. You'll bruise his heel, but I will come and redeem my people. I want you to know today that even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of God seeing you and saying, where are you at? He's not doing that because he doesn't know where you are. He just wants you to say, here, this is where I'm at. And God, I hear your voice and I want to get back to where you are. God, I want to get back to where you are. And God has given you hope today. God's given you hope today on restoration. It's available to all that would come to God in repentance. Restoration, redemption is available. The tree of life, it's going to be restored. That tree of life that was there in the Garden of Eden, it's going to be available to us in heaven in the greater garden of God. That tree of life will be there and we can be restored. Amen. Could you lift up your hands today? On God's searching for somebody with an open heart. God's searching for somebody today that would say, Lord, I recognize my need for you. Lord, I want to come into a perfect relationship with you. Lord, I'm a sinner. God, I've, been, I've made mistakes, but I don't want to take advantage of the grace anymore. God, I don't want to take advantage of all these things, Lord, that I've been taking advantage of for so long. But I want to live for you. God, I want to obey you. I want to live, God, in a perfect relationship with my Savior. God, you've redeemed me already. You died on a cross for my sins. Come on, if that's you today, he's, uh, he's offering it to you. His redemptive plan is simple. It's three things. Three things. This is those that would come and humbly before me and repent of their sins. If you would humble yourself and to say, Lord, 
I'm a sinner. I need you. I need grace. And I'm ready to step away from who I used to be and the path that I'm going on. Well, this is what repentance is all about. It's making the decision to follow Jesus. It says if you would just repent of your sins and you could be baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ for the remission of all of your sins. Well, that's the second thing that he's calling you to today. If you need to come in a relationship with him, there's ba- baptismal waters that we have ready here today. Well, and he says you can be baptized in every sin that you've ever committed can be washed away, can be gone. If you have never been baptized before today, I want to call you today and just say it's available. This promise is available even today for God's redeeming power. I want to wash away every sin. And then he says, I promise this gift of my Holy Spirit. My spirit could dwell in you and we can be in perfect union again. On my spirit can be there with you. Amen. Just lift up your hands today. I'm thankful for the redeeming power of God. Amen. His redemptive plan that's set out before us today. God, I love you. Thank you, Jesus. There's no shadow. 